main activist. Some people in town say the base is run by aliens working with our federal government to conduct mind control and genetic experiments. I'm leaving. I'm glad. Thanks a lot, society, for railroading my ass. This is the Eerie Americas. This is Vicky Ayala. This is Christy Hall. What up, everyone? I'm tired this week. I feel like we're both pretty spent. I'm so tired. I can't even think of anything. Yeah. And we're in another snowstorm in New York. Cold weather, a lot of snow, a lot of hard work this week. I'm also happy to still be in Colorado because apparently everyone's leaving New York except the serial killers because in Brooklyn, we've gotten two serial killers in the last six months, right? On my list, I have that there was a Brooklyn serial killer that was caught. And by the time we have talked about it now, there's actually been another one. It, but it was a little different. The other, the first serial killer was killing basically people in what they call NYCHA buildings, which is like a low income housing. And it was happening like years and they finally caught him. The other serial killer was like someone recently who just decided they were going to stab homeless people on the train. Yeah, it was more of a spree killing. Yeah. And they killed two and two survived. And because of those two survivors, they got a description and they were able to catch him. And when they caught him, he like still had the blood on his shoes and he had the knife on him. And it's just been crazy here. We'll put the two articles in our show notes if you're interested in finding out more. Yeah, there's not really a lot of information about them. There's, It's kind of new. In a season or two, we'll be able to cover the full episode, I'm sure. Probably talk about it. But it's just wild. There's a lot of like robbery. Like It's a, a really big increase in, in crimes. financial cr- yeah. like, crimes with financial games. So of course, I'm going to condemn the crime. But it's like, how, what are you supposed to do when you're desperate and the country and the government isn't giving you a stimulus and you're sitting here in the middle of a pandemic with nothing to do? That's what's going to happen. And you, mental health is already not taken seriously here. And then you're just not getting the help you need. And you're a lot of people lost their insurance during the pandemic. There's so many reasons that crime has gone up. And it's just incredibly sad. And very, very crazy that we've had two of them in like both in Brooklyn. It's not even New York City, it's Brooklyn specifically. Like you were just saying, I think with crime, they were singularly in the same area, but for very different reasons, because we don't understand why the spree killing, why someone would attack homeless people that are already so vulnerable. We're in the middle of a pandemic. They have nowhere to go. They're on the train because it's freezing out. Exactly. There's there's such few havens for people that before the pandemic, shelters were overloaded all the time, let alone having to worry about putting too many people in so much space. They don't have places to go. And so these poor people in this poor community is already so vulnerable. And someone just snaps and decides to attack them. And we don't know the reasons. I don't know what happened. We don't. And they actually, one of the survivors said they screamed, I'm going to kill you from the beginning. So obviously you went in with that intention. But it's like, why? But exactly. No matter what, there's not going to be a valid reason. We're all going through a crisis. But to be homeless on top of that. And this other killing, it just seemed like the person was just robbing them blind, including up to their lives. Like he was just taking anything that that he could take. It's interesting to see all of this slowly coming out and how crimes shift in such big areas. I just also feel like because we're in a pandemic, we're also hearing about things a lot more. If we were in a normal hustle and bustle of things, who knows if we would have actually even heard about it as much as we did. But I also feel like this also goes to show you how hard it is to not get caught now. Not only because there are two survivors, you're in a fucking train station. There are cameras in the train stations. So like, he really, like, how long did you think you were going to get away with it? Vicky said to me, she goes, you were right. Because I always say you can't be a serial killer these days. They know the way that people think. They understand that Methodism now. 
And there's cameras everywhere. And you're literally on camera everywhere you go. I don't, like, no matter, and social media sometimes is good for certain things. Like, for example, there was another, like, hate crime against the Asian community in Queens, New York. And within 24 hours, because they spread his picture on Instagram, the guy was caught. You just can't, you can't do shit now. You're on camera everywhere you go. And I know that we don't like it. And we all think Big Brother's watching us. But sometimes it is good because then pieces of shit get caught right away. You can't do anything without being on camera. Like you don't have to commit your crime on camera, but they're going to find out the last place that you were. Somebody saw you, a camera picked up on you. Cell phones have signals. There's just, there's a trace of you everywhere. So just don't serial kill. That's just not. Have another outlet for your, for your, yeah. Make, make, make better decisions with exactly. your life. You know, it's really funny ever since we started this podcast, the, the kind of DMs, text messages and phone calls that I get. My DMs on Instagram, my text messages are flooded with horror and true crime memes, news, and just everything you could think of. It is Stories you it. get tagged on. Like, it's hilarious. When people tag me on stories, they're the best. It's multiple people. So by the time somebody sends it to me, I'll be like, oh my God, you know me. Because I can get tagged in something like six times in an hour. And I'm like, all right, damn, like, am I that obvious? So uh, the other day, our friend and very big fan, he, he texted me. He's like, hey, are you busy? And I'm just like, this has to be a serious conversation because you never ask me if I'm busy. We just talk all day. And I'm just like, I was busy, but I was just like, oh my God, this must be really serious. So yeah, go ahead. So tell me a, a creepy story that I'm going to now tell you guys. I already told him I was going to tell you. This was urgent then. It was absolutely urgent. So he was on a train, I believe, coming back from upstate. It was pretty late at night. It was like almost midnight. And uh, he was riding train with his husband. His husband was asleep. And when you're coming through certain parts, there's a lot of cemeteries in New York. Tons. Just a lot. They're everywhere. There are tons. And so, but he was coming down a highway and uh, there's a cemetery there. And, you know, he'll be, you know, you look and stuff like that. And he said he, he just happened to look and he saw like this light and like these orbs. But he, you know, being a rational human being and he doesn't. It's not that he doesn't believe in it. He's one of those people. He's, he's not one of those obnoxious people that's like, no, there's no such thing as that. He's one of those people that's like, I just need some proof. You know what I mean? Like to see it. So he automatically was like, all right, maybe that's like a reflection. There's a lot of cars, mirrors. But then he just started noticing that the light was like not white. It was kind of yellow. And there were just these little orbs. And they looked like they were coming out of the tombstones. But they weren't going anywhere. They just looked like they were like coming out of the tombstones. Kind of like hovering above it. Right. But and they weren't really like coming at him and they weren't flying around everywhere. They were kind of just like coming up from there and staying there. And he said that for some reason, he didn't feel scared. He actually felt really calm, like eerily calm when he saw this. And he said he just saw it the whole time that he was going past the cemetery. He just saw all these orbs coming out of the tombstones and in the cemetery. And then his husband's normally the one that sees things and his husband was asleep. And he's like, why didn't you wake me up? And he's like, I don't know. Like, he's like, I was just looking and I wasn't scared. And he was in the moment. I was just super calm. And I was just, that's exactly what it was. He was just in the moment and just observing it. Of course, it's obviously interesting that you see all these orbs driving up from tombstones that are staying within the cemetery as if they're all hanging out. But it's not just that. It's how it made you feel. Some people might be scared. Some people might be terrified. Some people might try to justify it. You looked for one rational explanation. You couldn't find it. And then you were just calm with the idea and I'm like, that has to mean something that it was so calming. It was like, they weren't threatening. They weren't coming towards you. They weren't making you feel anything other than they're in their resting place and something's, you know, some energy's going on over there. 
And I've, it's not the first time you hear of people seeing orbs in the cemetery, but normally it happens like if you take a picture or you notice it in the background, you might see one, but he said he saw a bunch and that like, and sometimes they disappear really quick. He really just observed this. And I told him, I was like, what's funny about that is if you had woken up your husband, you could have possibly lost it. Like you wouldn't have seen it anymore. Maybe your husband wouldn't have seen it. Maybe he would have seen something different. I just found this so interesting how calming it was for him, especially as someone who isn't like necessarily like, oh, I, I completely believe in this. Now, after my heart came out of my ass because I was so scared when he called me. And I think it also was important for me to hear as someone who just lost somebody who was buried. I'm like, I like to know that she's around somewhere and others, other spirits or energy is around there with her. Like she's, they're not alone. But they're also like not coming out and trying to like terrify human beings walking around. They're just kind of like in their own little space and the energy's just floating around in there. I just thought it was an interesting story. But he saw orbs in the cemetery as he was driving by 100%. And it was a time too, like, you know, things always happen late at night. And he's like, it's close to midnight. You know, the closer you get to like 3 a.m. dead hour, the more you tend to see things. Like you might not have seen that at 10 o'clock at night, but you'll see it at midnight. As our listeners have gathered by now, Vicky and I love horror movies, naturally. They say nothing is as scary as your imagination, but we all know there have been some films that have seeped into your nightmares and inner paranoid thoughts that can make you feel uneasy. As film buffs and historians can tell you, the very first picture on screen was of a moving train, and the audience ran screaming in a blind panic, believing the train would come off the screen and kill them. While many of us are intrigued by what it must be like on any film set, especially a horror film, it can be exciting but it can also be long and tedious if anyone's ever been on a set. Each shot is carefully taken and prepared, so a lot relies on the actor's abilities, the shock factor, and the direction. However, some sets have been known to have been plagued by phenomenon, either mid-shoot, post-production, or in one case, pre-production, which is insane. Some films intended to spook the audience have actually frightened the cast and crew, leading some to believe it's possible to have a cursed film. Here are some you may know very well and may even be on your top favorite list. One of the highest grossing horror films of all time took back breaking work, figuratively and literally, and is still wildly popular among horror buffs. The Exorcist has been and, <laughs> and always will be a monstrous hit. To this day, it ranks as one of the top grossing horror films of all time, having earned over $232 million in revenue. It also earned a staggering 10 Academy Award nominations, which included Best Picture, Best Actress, Best Actor, Best Supporting Actress, and Best Director. Which is super rare for a horror film. You don't really ever see horror films get Academy Award nominations. Anything besides like maybe makeup or costume. But other than that, you don't see Best Picture nominations for horror films. Any film that has all of that is impressive, let alone a horror film. It's always going to rank up there. On 13thfloor.com, I found seven reasons why the film is haunted. And maybe after hearing these, you'll think the same thing. It's really funny when something's so scary, because The Exorcist to this day, I don't care how old you are, I don't care if it's the first or the third time or the hundredth time you see it, it's scary. Before COVID, every October, there are certain theaters that will play like, quote unquote, old movies in there, like meaning not new horror films, but they'll they'll play all horror films from our past. And I remember a year, The Exorcist was the film they were showing. So I was like, The Exorcist is probably one of my all time favorite horror movies. I have to go see the movie theater, brought a friend with me. And he's like jumping and like super scared. And I'm like, why are you reacting like that? Like, we know what's happening. I did not know he had never seen it, like ever. And then I went and took him to the movies and went to go see it. And I kind of felt bad because I'm like, the experience is so different in a theater. And as adults, he was just like, 
what the fuck was that? Like, it's yeah. still scary. It's still terrifying. And that's what I love about it. It, No matter how old you are or how long it's been since you've seen the film or how old the film is, it's still really a creepy topic. And something that we always talk about, which is don't play with the Ouija board because we know Reagan plays with one. <laughs> don't yep. play with fucking Ouija boards, people. But I didn't know the set may have been haunted. In 1973, William Fredkin set out to bring William Blady's novel, The Exorcist, to the big screen. It's a story of a young girl possessed by a demon, in case I'm throwing it out there for the few people that may have not seen it. The Exorcist instills and still does terror in audiences. Taking on the subject of demonic possession and a very controversial Catholic ritual was sure to turn a few heads. No pun intended. <laughs> but after many strange and catastrophic occurrences, many became convinced that the film set and the movie itself was cursed by a demon. And so are the following facts. Mm, okay. Fact number one. The Exorcist is based off a real-life event. William Peter Blaney wrote in his 1971 novel of the same name based on a real-life exorcism of a boy known as Roland Doe. Catholic priests at Georgetown University Hospital performed the real-life exorcism but had to stop when the boy managed to free himself from his restraints, pulling a bedspring out of his mattress and slashing one of the priest's arms. When Blady wrote the novel, Roland's family requested the character to be changed to a girl in order to protect the boy's identity. Yeah, he's still Roland Doe. We have no idea who it is. But they still changed even the gender just to ensure because, like, this, this family was so petrified to tell the story. Roland went on to live a normal life with no memory of the incident and actually retired decades later from NASA. So that also kind of goes to show you that it's not just, like, kooky people, people you think are crazy. Dude was smart. He worked for NASA, and it happened to him. It ha can happen to anybody. And I think that's also why it's scary, because it could happen to anybody. And it kind of sets a groundwork for knowing that this actually did occur. Even if it was a little bit dramatized, it's still scary. Right, but something along these lines happened. Fact number two. Shooting was delayed after the set caught fire, destroying what was supposed to be McNeil's home. Director William Fredkin blamed the incident on a winged creature with talons. It seemed a pigeon had found its way into one of the circuit bo boxes, which caused the fire. What was creepy about this, though, was the fact that Reagan's room was unharmed by the fire. See, no, that's that's already starting shit. The one room where the possession takes place is the one room that did not burn down. Which it's funny because Reagan, if you don't know, is the young girl who gets possessed. The fun I wanted to point this out. This is how you know I've been obsessed with The Exorcist since I was younger. I always say I don't want his kids, but I said if I ever had a kid and I had a girl, her name would be Reagan. And they're like, oh, that's a cool name. Where'd you get it from? I'm like, The Exorcist. And I'm, they're just like, why? I'm like, it's a cool name. Like, her name is Reagan. Jacked for the same reason, because I'm like, that's Johnny, and that's Johnny exactly from The Shining. Exactly, from The Shining, which was honestly my mother's favorite movie as a kid. You know, you have movie nights, and most kids sit down and watch Disney with their parents. My mom would be like, let's watch The Shining. And we would just be watching The Shining as, like, seven-year-olds. Totally. But that's creepy. <laughs> yeah, really fucking creepy. Fact number three. During filming, actress Ellen Burstyn, who played Reagan's mom, was originally injured when the possessed Reagan throws her to the ground. The take was actually used in the film. So when you see her fall, that is actually what happened. And the blood-curdling scream she let out was completely genuine. I mean, still, like, I just thought it was really good acting, but that could that, that could have really hurt her because she, she, she flew. Absolutely. And apparently the injury bothers her to this day. So it's something she still lives with. And like Linda, Linda Blair at the time was like really young. So I'm like, how did she really throw an adult hard enough to hurt her to this day? Yeah, very strange. Fact number four. Chances are good that any film that takes over a year to complete will be associated with bad incidents. But The Exorcist actually had a few deaths. 
actors Jack McRowan and I'm gonna I'm so gonna screw this up. Vis Vasiliki Maliaros both died when the film was in post production. What makes their death strange is that their characters died on the film as well. Kinda creepy. These are getting creepier, <laughs> like the fact progressively. Other deaths that occurred during the filming of The Exorcist included Linda Blair's grandfather and Max von Sydow's brother, who died on Max's first day of shooting. That's like a bad omen. I don't even think I'd do the movie at that point. I know, right? I'd be like, some weird shit's happening here. While filming, the son of Jack Miller, who played father Damien Carras, was nearly killed when a motorcycle hit him. No, this so is like... all these the actors is, are just getting attacked. It's one thing for the bad, like the, the bad omens and like the, the stuff to be like within the people in the movie. But this is like spreading beyond the people in the movie and affecting people just associated with people in the movie. And that's where it starts getting really bad. Exactly. Fact number five, while filming one of the possession scenes, Linda, also known as Reagan, was thrown out of bed when a piece of rigging broke, causing her to injure her back as well. So literally two almost back-breaking injuries so far in The Exorcist. And that's like, what, the second injury at this point? Because Ellen Burstyn was also hurt? Because her mom also hurt her back during the filming. Additionally, after the film's release, Linda received so many death threats that the studio had to hire bodyguards to escort her for the next six months of her life after a recording. She was like 13 or 14 when she did this yeah, movie. Yeah, she was, I think, 14, and yeah. she... I, I know that I read about that and like they were literally threatening her because of her portrayal of someone who was possessed because this is for very religious people a very touchy subject when you tell them about demonic oh, yeah. possession and the Catholic Church backing an exorcism. The crazy thing to me is you're going after the kid but like there's other people like why not go after the guy who plays the priest or the mother or the person who wrote it like you went after the child portraying a character. Stupid. Oh yeah. Fact number six. In 1987, actress Mercedes McCambridge, who played the demonic voice of Pazuzu, was the victim of a horrific tragedy when her son murdered his wife and children before taking his own life. So now this is like, what, the 10th family member or something? And this is years after the movie comes out, so it's like still... You scared the shit out of me. Because <laughs> we're talking about The Exorcist. But yeah, this is like so long after the movie came out that it's like, damn, you're still feeling the effects of it. And the final one, fact number seven, many believe that the actual film was cursed and playing it through the projector was an invitation for demonic possession. I can kind of see that. And for some reason, it is the old school stuff that it's ten it tends to be drawn to. Televangelist Billy Graham stated, quote, there is a power of evil in this film, in the fabric of the film itself, end quote. When it was first released, the film was banned in every Middle Eastern country but Lebanon, and the re-release was banned in Lebanon, so they eventually got banned again there too. During the Roman premiere, audiences had to fight their way through torrential downpour, accompanied by thunder and lightning <laughs> in order That's to get sign. into the theater. <laughs> Many inside claimed to hear a horrific, almost demonic cry coming from outside once the film started rolling. So before the sky there was, was even like, sounds, yeah. <laughs> the sky was opening up. People were hearing sounds. They must have been like, this is I a crazy premiere. I can see it premiere. though like, because I can, like I said, watching that movie at home or watching it in a movie theater is so different. Like the experience, like remember I've seen this movie a million times. It doesn't actually scare me anymore. I just enjoy watching it. And you feel something in a movie theater when it's playing. It doesn't matter how old, how long it's been. It, it, there is a very creepy element to watching it on a big screen. So I can totally Absolutely. see that. And it's also the sounds. Like yeah. you can hear it so clearly. It's so loud. So a lot of the things you, you don't hear that when you're playing it in your TV at home, but you hear it when you're in a movie theater, the bass, and it comes through all the speakers. And it's something that like goes under your skin and you feel it. 
and the final injury from the oh my god that, that we it? know of. <laughs> I thought that was no. It. Oh, I was at one showing. A woman was so frightened, she passed out in the theater and broke her jaw when she fell. She later sued the filmmaker, suggesting the subliminal message caused the accident. Right, that's a bit much. Warner Brothers settled out of court for an undisclosed amount. Damn. So it took a lot of death, a lot of pain, a lot of work for The Exorcist. Granted, it's the most successful horror film of all time and probably will always be. But at what cost? I did not know it took all of this for it to come out. The next one I found on horrorbound.net, and it is a very weird case. I mentioned pre-production, and this is the one. So this is Curse of Atuk. In the introduction of this episode, I mentioned pre-production. For those of us who may not know, pre-production is writing the script, casting everybody. Everything before you everything start recording. That's, everything that's done before you actually start filming. Ha, I said recording like it's a podcast. Filming. Filming. It's a movie. Filming. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> filming. Sorry, we're, used, we're podcasters. It's a script that actually has never been filmed, but it does involve a strange coincidence or, in my opinion, curse. We don't do coincidences. We don't believe in that. And while it is not a horror movie, it does seem like a movie. It is a movie that kills people. What? So <laughs> it's it's kind of like a real life horror movie. Like, that's why I was like, it's not exactly a horror film, but you'll see why it's really fucking cursed. Like, I just had to put it down. It's not that it has to be a horror film, just a cursed film. It's truly cursed. It being a cursed film makes it a horror film, whether it's a horror film or not. Yeah, it's horrifying because of what it does. So there we go. So the script is called Atuk, which is Inuit for grandfather. And it's a Canadian story about an Inuit poet from Baffin Islands who gets sent to Toronto. A total fish out of the water type of story. Like, you know, like leaves a little city and goes into a big city. However, in the movie version, this is from a book, he lives in Alaska and ends up in New York City. That's kind of the same thing, though. <laughs> like little town, big yeah. city. So the premise is a woman visits his town in Alaska and she's a documentarian. When they leave, he stows away on their plane. When he arrives, he saves a young man who is the son of a powerful real estate mogul. Okay. Sounds very New Yorkish. And hijinks ensue. So it's more of a comedy. Oh, yeah. The start, the pre-production started in the 70s, into the 80s. So that kind of comedy, like that style yeah, was very in at that yeah. time. So like trading places yeah, that's and what it sounds coming like, to right? America. That's kind of what it was reminding me of. Like when, it, when like they were breaking it Like just basically just sticking somewhere, somewhere random and seeing what happens. Like those were the greatest. Yeah. So the film adaptation was requested by Norman Jewison in the early 1970s. He's a Canadian director and producer who helped, who helped start up of the CBC. Norman was actually a really interesting dude, and he seriously lived a crazy, productive, cool life. Like, if you guys get to Google him, his name is Norman Jewison. If you have any interest in film, check him out. He's really cool. Like, it was a really, like, I almost wanted to dive into it, but I'm like, this is just more history. Like, it does has nothing to do with the actual film. But he's a cool dude. Check him out. Todd Carroll wrote the adaptation, and Jewison planned to film it in Canada. So he planned on doing the direction. The first pick for the main character was chosen to be the one, the only, John Belushi. You may know him as the Animal House guy or the guy from SNL. He was offered the lead in 1982, and he expressed a lot of interest in the script. I, as a deep Canadian fan, see a huge flag for this, and it will be bought up before I conclude, but okay, this was the 80s, so... I see the appeal And everybody of it. loved him, so... Yeah, exactly. A few months later, though, on March 5th, Belushi was tragically found deceased in his to- in his hotel room at Chateau Marmont by his trainer, Bill March Wallace. March 5th? Oh, that's my mom's birthday. March 5th, 82. He was 33 years old. The cause of death was determined to be drug-related, most likely a speedball. His death was investigated by a forensic pathologist, and the findings were disputed. However, two months later, Catherine Evelyn Smith, a Canadian backup singer, weirdly enough 
admitted she had been with Belushi on the night of his death and gave him the fatal dosage. The case was reopened, and she was arrested and charged with first-degree murder and served 15 months in California for her part in John's demise. So after losing their lead, the script went back on the market, and in 1986, and this this time, Sam Kinison signed on to play the, the lead role of Atuk. Sam Kinison was an American stand-up comedian actor known for his legendary scream. I'm going to play his scream for somebody that might not know him. It's on YouTube. I'm going to have it on the show notes. You're as pretty as when we met! That's quite distinctive. So he's kind of got like a loud, (laughs) really crazy, shrill scream. He got famous for doing that kind of sound and then progressed into moving into cooler stuff. In 1988, production began. Finally, all these years later. Yeah, so it's went from 82 to 86. So this took four years again. So this is delayed by four years. In 88, production began and they managed to get in eight days of filming before Kinnison halted the production. He just was like, stop, this is not working out. He didn't like the way it turned out and began to rewrite the script. Kinison said he was given creative control. I don't know if this is true. I couldn't back this I up. I can't or not. imagine a script that's already been out for six years being given creative control, like yeah. eight days into filming. Normally, they do that stuff before you start filming. Well, occasionally they'll they'll change like a page or two, but right. not an or entire they'll do like rewrite. A line that maybe you didn't like, but they're not going to let you start rewriting the script. Yeah, and creative control means you're changing everything. So it's like. You're the second lead actor, dude. I'm pretty sure this isn't 100% true. I couldn't find this verified in any way. Apparently, he became difficult when the studio got involved. A lawsuit began. Yet again, a took came to a screeching halt. So this is now the second delay of this movie because, you know, they couldn't agree. I mean, I I still say it probably wasn't true. Isn't part of pre-production... Reading the script, like, don't you have to, as an actor, read the script and be like, hey, I want to do this movie? He didn't read the script before. He didn't know he didn't like it before he started filming it. Well, I think sometimes when you start to film, you realize what sounds good when you read it. And then when you actually film it, it's different. And maybe he just felt like he had to step in. That's really crazy. You did over a week of filming, which means you spent money. And then you're just going to be like, no, I don't want to. Yeah. So the movie was put on hold again until 1992. Oh, at this point, I would have given up. It's been like 10 10 years years at this point. Production began to set up again. Unfortunately, during the negotiations, Sam Kinison dies. Oh my God, that's not even... Yeah, it was Friday, April 10th, 1992. His car was struck head on in California by a pickup driver. You're actually creeping me out and I'm going to tell you why, right? So you're telling me John Belushi died on my mom's birthday and Sam Kennison died on a Friday, April 10th, which is when my mom died. She died Friday, April 10th. And now this is creeping me out even more. Whoa, that's really fucking weird. Really, really creepy. I'm just going to laugh it off to not show how creeped out I am. Yeah, for real. Continue. His car was... Oh, I'm scared. Okay, so his (laughs) car... I can't even focus. Okay, his car was struck head on in California by a pickup truck driven by a 17-year-old kid who was driving drunk. Kinnison was alive after the crash. His best friend, Carl LaBeouf, had been driving behind him at the time of the incident. His brother was there as well, and they could see no visible injuries. So as far as they could tell, he was he okay. Was, he should have been okay. But then suddenly, Kinnison began to repeat, like talk to himself, repeating, I don't want to die. Ooh. And then it appeared as if he was talking to someone else who wasn't there. And he said, but why? Okay. Okay. And then he lost consciousness. He could not be resuscitated, and he died at the scene from internal injuries. His wife was also in the car, survived, and she survived with a mild concussion. So she was fine. He's the one that died. Sam Kinison was 38 years old. Coincidentally as well, I actually mentioned the Sam Kinison's tragic and odd death in season one. 
episode 31 titled A Dark Highway into People's Innermost Fear. So it's eerie to me when random things like this come back to remind me. And then you mentioned your mom too. So check that episode out if you haven't, but really fucking weird that you mentioned that because I put that in there. So I really wish you guys could see my face right now because my eyeball is about to pop out of my head and my jaw is about to hit the floor. Yeah. And that doesn't happen very often. Okay, next one. But anyways. (laughs) I need to shake this off. Shake this off. Okay. (laughs) This wasn't even a horror movie and this movie never even came out. I can't even say if it had come out, I probably, even though it's a comedy, would never watch it just based off of that. But Mm -hmm. I'm guessing they gave up after this. Please tell me they gave up. We'll get there. Despite this being the second lead to pass away, the production team refused to give up. They really believed in the script. And so in 1994, they approached John Candy. No, John Candy does too. John Candy was a beloved Canadian actor and comedian. I personally grew up loving John John Candy. Candy. Uncle Buck was like one of my favorite movies also because of Macaulay Culkin. And then they did Home Alone together. Like he was just like the dad that was around growing up. Like I love John Candy. I Like I put in here, big parts, Vicky and I watched growing up. How, what, 94, 93? And I was actually, and I was really young. And I actually remember when my dad told me and I was really upset. Upset. Yep. It was one of the too. first times I was upset about like a celebrity set that mm-hmm. was really young because yep, he was really here. beloved. John was thrilled to do this work and he began to study the script. But in March of that same year, 94, like I mentioned, so we're at 94, he also dies. Candy was working in Mexico and at some point in the night of March 4th, he died of a heart attack at 43 years old. It is said that John had reportedly asked his close friend, Michael O'Donohue, I looked who this up, who this was up because they didn't really mention who it was. So Michael was an American writer performer and was most noted as being the first head writer of SNL. And apparently he said the first sentence ever on SNL. Like he was the first person to be ever on SNL. So he asked his friend, Michael O'Donohue, to also read the script and perhaps join the cast. So he was like, hey, this is a great script. I want you to check it out. In November of that same year, also 94, Michael passes away. No, no. The Mm -mm. same guy Mm -mm. that touched and checked Mm -mm. out that. Script. Nope. He had a history of chronic migraines and he died from a cerebral hemorrhage at thir- 54 years old. Now, mind you, everyone has been under 65. It's not like, sure, John yeah. Belushi, John Candy, they were all big boys and, you know, whatever. This is still really strange. This is the fourth that it's person the that has same. died. So you would think this would be the end, right? Nope. Why wouldn't that be the end? That should have yeah. been the end. So 1997 rolls around and the film resurfaces again. Atuk was offered to Chris Farley. No, come on! American comedian who rose to fame on SNL. Farley was aware of that his idol Belushi, because everyone knows like Chris Farley was obsessed with John Belushi, was offered the part. So he was intrigued and expressed sincere interest. Like he really wanted to do it, knowing that it was one of the last things John wanted to do. But much like his idol, Farley died very young at the same age as Belushi, 33. A few months after reading the script on December 18th, 1997, Farley was found dead by his younger brother in his apartment. He also died of a drug overdose, a speedball just like Belushi. Chris Farley, also weirdly like John Candy, introduced his friend Phil Hartman to the script. No! Now, for those of us who don't know Phil Hartman, he's also an actor and comedian. But five months after the death of Farley, Hartman's wife murdered Phil in cold blood. His wife, Brian Hartman, got into a heated argument with Phil after he threatened to leave her if she started using drugs again. At 3 a.m., Bryn entered the room and shot Phil twice in the head and once in his side. She drove to a friend's house and confessed the murder. The friend didn't believe her, so the two drove back to the house. The friend saw the body and called the police. As the police arrived and escorted the children out of the home, Brim locked herself in the bedroom and shot herself, committing suicide. Since then, a toque sits unmade and untouched for years. Yeah, no, it should stay there. Burn it. Burn it in a barrel. Some believe it's a curse. Some don't. It's up to you. 
I myself was wondering why no one is questioning the fact that a bunch of white guys were cast as an Inuit. But that's a whole other side of Hollywood I don't even want to get into. You know what it is? I didn't even say anything because I'm. it's not a surprise. Yeah, but at the same... It's just but not. Maybe, maybe that's, that's the, curse. the curse. And that's what I... That was my point. Like, how do we know that Inuit people don't take this script a little more seriously and someone's looking it's out so for it? It's so crazy. This is... I, I've known about some haunted sets. This is the most I've ever heard. And it's not even a horror film. I'm telling you right now... That movie's not even funny. I don't care what it's about. <laughs> and by the time, like, and I honestly, I don't see it ever getting made because I feel like comedy's changed a lot since then. And that premise of a movie probably wouldn't work the same now. But it should never be made. The script should be burned. And it should be, I, I don't want to say forgotten because so many great people, like, had their hands on it and died as a result of it. And a lot of people actually said it was going to be good. A lot of people signed on to do it. And, you know, these were the- I mean, if those, if that many good- great name signed on to do it it had to have been a good script i just don't ever want to see it and think about it every single one of them was at the height of their career they didn't have to select it so they didn't have to select that specific film if they didn't think it was worth it so who knows if the script will ever come out of the dark and attempt to be made again with that long history of bad luck and whitewashing that i wouldn't want to tamper with what do you think do you think it i know vicky thinks it's cursed yeah i was like you know what i think do you think the curse of a toque is real or just a coincidence this is my last one. Thanks for not ending with that one because I think I would have been very uncomfortable. And the funny thing is, is I chose that one because it was it was pre-production. But the next one, there are two classics where you're going to know this one right away. I was like, I'll slap this one in the middle because no one's going to know about the Took one. But this one you'll know. And this is The Omen Curse. This one I had to cover because this is the first film that I had heard my entire life growing up was actually yep. cursed. This one and Poltergeist were like the biggest ones. There were so many. I could probably do this episode again because there's even more. The next time you should do the episode again, that time I'm going to be drunk because I'm sober right now. I don't have any <laughs> alcohol because we are actually recording on a Monday night and I finished work and I didn't have a drink and I was not ready for any of this. I need something to numb it try to warn you i was so not prepared for this on a monday night like i just was not all right i'm ready even though i know this i know it's gonna creep me out good okay i know there's but there's stuff i even learned like I, i'd heard about this and i was like "Ooh, this is good so popsugar.com the omen curse as summer came to an end in 1975 production began on one of the more well-known entries in the horror film canon a chilling portrayal that depicts the foretold arrival of the antichrist and the inevitable end of times the omen came hot off the success of The Exorcist. The Exorcist had been, as I mentioned, that monstrous hit, still ranks as one of the top horror films of all time. So with this kind of success, it seemed that The Omen would be a surefire hit. Producer Harvey Bernard had counted on it. What he might not have expected, though, was the strange set of occurrences that would string together and earn The Omen a reputation as one of the most cursed productions in film history. Even when The Omen was just an idea floating around the Hollywood stratosphere, Bernhard had received a grave warning. So before there was even a script, people were telling him about this. No, that see, that's already like, huh, maybe I should. I mean, it was a great film and I'm great. I'm glad he made it. But it's like, maybe yep. I should think about this. According to the LA Times, an advertising executive named Bob Munger had approached him with the idea involving the Antichrist. Munger pitched the concept with caution. Bernhardt said, quote, he warned us that, that he thought the devil didn't want us to make this picture. I mean, I could kind of see it, especially because this was not too far like after The Exorcist and people were already reeling from doing that. Like, I think at this time in history, people were really starting to visit this topic and a lot of people had a problem with it. And it's it's a very touchy subject still. Every time that there's a know, movie involving anything like this, religious people are always really, really upset about it. 
Absolutely. But the quote that got me the most curious about this, and like, I'll read it to you now and then I'll express what I'm thinking, but in later interviews, both Munger and Bernhard recalled how they predicted the curse in these early moments. Munger recalls his words of warning. I said, quote, if you make this movie, you're going to have some problems. If the devil's greatest single weapon is to be invisible and you're going to do something which is going to take away his invisibility to millions of people, he's not going to want to have that happen, end quote. Now, hmm. mind you, the person who said this is the guy who pitched it. So why would you pitch a movie with that kind of warning? Were you warned of that yourself or were you supposed to say that? Right. That's what I couldn't understand. Yeah. Were you an instrument that was warned of this or were you warned of it and said, fuck it, I'm going to do it anyway? How come no one questioned that? That's that's what I would be like. Well, if you're, I'd be like, dude, if you're saying this, why are you pitching it to me? Yeah, why did nobody question this? This right? That's going to be our next list of eerie America's things. Why did nobody question these things? Bernhard recalled, quote, the devil was at work and he didn't want that film made. The trouble ignited before the film even began production. The perceived catalyst was the tragic suicide of lead actor Gregory Peck's son who had shot himself in the head in June 1975, just two months before the first days on set. Off the bat, the lead actor walked in with like very tragic circumstances. I don't know how he didn't pull out of a movie. Like It's pretty sad. When Peck flew to London for the role, his plane was struck by lightning. No, Mm -mm. I'll go back home. Back home. Back home we go. A few weeks later, executive Mark Neufeld boarded a flight from L.A., his plane was also struck by lightning. Also go back home. Nope. And he referred to the experiences as the roughest five minutes I've ever had on an airliner. Who's ever heard of two people working on one thing? So I looked up the statistics and they say the chances of someone getting one person getting struck by lightning twice is one in nine million. So like if that if you a by the way, if you're that person who's been struck, you need to play the lotto because like oh, yeah. that's mm-hmm. such crazy odds. But I don't even know there's if there's a statistic for like someone working together, both people have it's gotten just, it's too unlikely. It just I don't think I don't think there's and even it, like, like I couldn't find a chart for it. Like I was like, let me see fly, the odds of this. Planes fly over the weather, so the fact that the plane even got struck by lightning to me is already unlikely and it's happened twice and that's and you're already starting with the guy who One pitched guy the from movie London. already saying it doesn't want to get done. Someone else saying it doesn't want to get done. Gregory Peck's son kills himself. Then he gets struck by lightning on a plane. And another guy gets struck by lightning on a plane. And it's kind of like, at this point, you it's, if I was like the guy who pitched it, at this point, I'd be like, okay, he really doesn't want this movie to get done. <laughs> but still, as you mentioned, production on The Omen moved forward. Bernhard began wearing a cross on set. At one point, the team had hired a small plane for some aerial filming. But the vessel was switched over to another client at the last minute. So someone else kind of like outbid them or something happened where they lost the small plane. The plane reportedly crashed on takeoff, killing everyone on board. No! So if that plane had been on the Omen set... Can we just stop with the planes and this movie? Just no, but this mo- no, no planes and this movie. Everybody drive, take a train, because that is insane. Well, you know, you would think this would be like the end of the creepiness, but more ominous circumstances seem to plague the production further from here. Newfield, the same guy whose plane was struck by lightning, that guy, the executive producer, was staying at the London Hilton with his wife. The building that night was bombed by the Irish Republican Army in September of that year. Oh my God. So he was there during a bombing. Two very, very statistically not likely things to happen and you survived a terrorist attack and a lightning strike if this guy didn't make millions of dollars in production before he literally needs to play the lotto every day of his life he will he will hit it eventually as filming rolled on so did the disasters one particularly chilling zoo scene 
had a group of wild baboons reacting violently to Damien's presence. According to director Richard Donner, Damien's mother, played by actress Lee Remick, was legitimately terrified while filming the sequence. For the safety of the cast and crew, an animal trainer had been brought on to deal with the baboons involved in the scene. He was killed the day after we shot there, Bernard recalled. He was killed by a tiger. He grabbed him by the head and killed him instantly. Wait, who was killed? The trainer that was there to help the baboons was killed the very next day after the shooting. So it's like the evil followed him and the animals attacked him. I don't have any words. <sighs> For real. That's what I'm saying. There were so many things I learned. I was like, I had heard about like here and there and like the lightning thing, but I had never heard about like the deep dive into this. Even after the film was finished, the curse seemed to live on, following those involved with it and inflicting them with unspeakable tragedy. The film's initial release was an obvious choice, June 6, 1976, or 6676. In August of that year, a special effects genius named John Richardson got in a terrible car accident. He was in the Netherlands working on Richard Attenborough's A Bridge Too Far. In terms of the omen, Richardson had executed a particularly gruesome decapitation scene. So if you know that scene, it was done by this man. Richardson had survived his car accident in Holland, but his passenger, assistant Liz Moore, hadn't been so fortunate. She had been beheaded. Decapitated. The same scene he did in the omen. According to local reports, a sign in the vicinity clocked the distance to a nearby town, and it was omen, spelled with two M's. 66.6 kilometers. Nope. That was the nearest sign that he recognized after seeing his assistant's head get chopped off. Nope. Mm -hmm. One of the film's stuntmen, Alf Joint, also went to work on a bridge too far. He wound up in the hospital after one of his stunts went wrong. In one sequence, he was simply meant to jump from the roof to an airbag, but he seemed to fall abruptly and strangely. When he woke up in the hospital, he claimed he'd been pushed by something. And what became of Harvey Stevens, the young boy who portrayed Damien? For a while, it seems like he had completely vanished. Back in 2001, AMC premiered a 90-minute documentary called The Omen Legacy. The piece rehashed many of the aforementioned stories and included interviews with the original cast and crew. Stevens was nowhere to be found. Quote, I, was, I saw him nine years ago, Bernard said at the time. He was, handsome and, he was handsome and a wonderful boy, tall and rather beautiful. It was the only picture he'd ever made. End quote. Kevin Burns, an executive producer for the special event, even went as far as to hire a PI to get a hold of the former actor. I'm sure he's out there somewhere. We really tried to find him. By the way, Stevens isn't missing, in case you were wondering. In fact, he returned to acting in 2006, right back to where his career started. He played a small role in the remake of The Omen, which starred Julia Stiles and Liev Schreiber, and was released on 6606. It's terrible. Don't watch it. Yeah, don't. Yeah, don't. As far as we know, nothing out of the ordinary happened during the production of the reboot. The quietude begs the question, is the curse of like the omen real, like the actual original movie. Was it all coincidence? Just a case of bad luck? Only the devil knows. After digging deeper into some of the classic favorites, this made me realize that the script directors and actors didn't really need to try very hard for shit to get really weird really quickly on set, given even further evidence that films deserve the timeless haunting success they have achieved. I need to sleep with the lights on tonight. (laughs) (laughs) And I will never watch these movies and feel the same way about them again. Well, I also think we also have to remember every movie we watch, there are people that put their time and their energy and their effort into it. And these people literally risk their lives to scare us. So we have to value that and appreciate that. And I'm telling you, there's so many more. I could have done like a two-hour episode. It's that. There's how many there are. Stay tuned for the next time Christy decides to creep us out with stories of haunted movie sets. Who does that? Who does that? Who does that? Who does that?
All right, so this Who Does That is from January, and it is, of course, it's funny because I keep finding Florida ones that involve cops. It just happens. This is from abcnews.go.com. It happens because Florida. Florida. The, the sun rises and sets every day, so something weird has to happen. A naked Florida man stole and then crashed a police car. Of course he did. We go ahead. <laughs> Specifically said he was naked. Can't just be. It, and it, it's funny because the headline said naked Florida man. And it's like, you don't really have to finish Can I that. ever not God. think of an, of like a guy from Florida who doesn't look like Johnny Knoxville naked and drunk? No, it never happens. I wish I knew what this guy looked like. It's just what I think of. I think of Johnny Knoxville like type of guy. I don't know why. It's just that's the guy who pops into my head. Officials say a naked Florida man has been arrested after stealing what news footage showed to be a marked police vehicle and crashing it. So he can't even say he didn't know it was a police vehicle because it's a marked police vehicle. It's not even like an undercover one. Oh my God. So a naked Florida man stole what news footage showed to be a marked police vehicle and crashed it in a wooded area, officials said. Joshua Schenker, 22, was arrested after Thursday's crash on charges including theft of a motor vehicle, aggravated battery on a law enforcement officer, depriving an officer of means of communication or protection, which I don't even know what that means. What the hell does that mean? And resist, depriving an officer of means of communication. Did he steal his phone? Oh, I guess because the radio center thing is in there and like the the internet thing is in there. I didn't know you could be charged. Can't can't that just be included in the crashing of the vehicle? And and it's stolen. Obviously you couldn't have possession of it if it was stolen. Why would it be an additional charge? It's like implied. Like you didn't have to, but whatever. Florida. Even your laws are dumb. They don't make sense. (laughs) And protection and resisting an officer without violence. According to a Jacksonville Sheriff's Office report, officers responded to reports of a naked man running along Interstate 10 in western Jacksonville shortly before noon Thursday. This was on January 23rd. Schenker was lying in the roadway. Lying in the roadway! Naked! When an officer stopped on the opposite side of the route, the report said, Schenker then ran across the highway lanes towards the officers. Towards towards the officer, officials said. The redacted report didn't say how Schenker stole the vehicle. Because they're embarrassed that they actually was able to steal it. Of course, he doesn't want the details out right. there. That's why it's redacted, because they don't want you to know how dumb it was. It has nothing to I do thought- with the evidence that against the person, because obviously he did it. They just don't want you to know how he did it. Like, just telling you a naked guy stole their vehicle isn't embarrassing enough. you not giving me the details of somehow No, worse. because then when Johnny Knoxville is drunk, Bam Margera is going to hear about it. And in, in the recess of his mind, he's going to remember. And then the next time, that's how he's going to steal the vehicle. That's why they redacted. it. Uh-huh, there it is. They don't want to give anybody ideas. Authorities confirmed only that a vehicle belonging to the city of Jacksonville was stolen. First Coast News footage of the scene showed the crash vehicle to be a marked patrol car. According to the police report, about $10,000 worth of damage was done to the vehicle. Officers noted Schenker had road rash after the crash and he was taken to a hospital to be checked out, authorities said. He was, Schenker was being held on $4,011. That's a very specific number bail. Very Jail specific. records didn't list an attorney for him. Well, no shit, because he probably left his attorney's number in the clothes that he took off. This guy's but relying like, on a public defender, first of all, let's be real. What the fuck kind of bail is $4,011? I just can't believe that. That's the biggest cost of stealing a cop car that you can imagine getting naked in front of the person. Them seeing you do it. And then you would think you'd be like, you know what? Kudos for the cojones you have for doing it right in front of me. And all he got was like road rash. It reminds me of Reno 911 when you, they would, you know, they would always have those videos where they would pull somebody over and they would somehow outsmart them even if they were drunk or higher. That's kind of what I'm envisioning, like a total Reno 911 moment. You got outsmarted by a naked man running around. Running around with road rash, probably on his butt. So pretty fucking hilarious. I gotta say, I love it. 
Florida. Florida's gonna no, Florida. Florida. Always. Never change, my dude. We'd have very little to talk about if Florida ever changed. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Follow us on Instagram. I will be trying to post the video of the crashing of the car on our website. Like, subscribe, follow us on Twitter, but most importantly, stay weird, Amicus. Bye. Bye.